You have fallen into Event Horizon with John Michael Godier. In today's episode, John is joined by Jacob Hack-Misra. Jacob Hack-Misra is a senior research investigator at the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. As a member of the American Geophysical Union and the International Astronomical Union, his research focuses on understanding the conditions that allow life to survive on Earth and the possibility of detecting signatures of biology or technology on other planets. He also studies the possible futures of life in the solar system. He received his MS in meteorology in 2007 from Penn State University. He received his PhD in meteorology and astrobiology in 2010. He enjoys playing music as a drummer and vibraphonist. He is a member of the psychedelic rock band Mystery Train. Dr. Jacob Hack, Mr. Welcome back to the program. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Now, Doctor, uh, we had a very interesting day with the UAP hearings in Congress. As a scientist that has a lot of involvement in questions of astrobiology and, and things like that, as a scientist watching that, what was your initial reaction to the whole thing overall? You know, I'll tell you my initial reaction to the whole thing. I watched the hearing with my wife, and we both were encouraged in the bipartisanship of the event. I feel like this is one of the only times I've seen the Congress where they felt like the People's Congress. Like we all want some answers and there was no infighting. There was just good questions and and a desire by the Congress people to to do some follow-up to figure out like what can they learn and why were they denied access to things that they should be given and why are they not able to fulfill their role as in oversight. So that part I liked and I found that encouraging and I hope this continues and I think it will. I had a similar reaction. I was like, how are these people not fighting? <laughs> and there were some other, there were some very contentious members of Congress in there on both sides. There were, know? I know. And they asked good questions. Right. I, I, was, I was just sort of repeatedly a little bit shocked by the quality of the questions that were being asked because these are, you know, they're, they're elected officials. This is not their cup of tea usually, right? Right. And I, I thought that they also covered a whole lot from a lot of legal stuff, which actually AOC asked and just, a lot of questions that I felt were very apolitical overall, bipartisan, and they just seem to want an answer and they want it quickly, I think. What do you think? No, I agree. I, th I think, I mean, there's obviously a lot of, you know, interest and pressure from their constituents, probably personal interest on, on, on their behalf. As an astrobiologist, what stuck out to me was, I think out of any of the, th the three recent hearings, this is the one where you know, the extraterrestrial hypothesis was invoked the most, I would say. And, and of course, everyone was careful, even David Grush, to say non-human and, and not extraterrestrial. And, you know, I appreciate whatever language you want to use. I appreciate what he's doing with that and just trying to leave open what whatever, you know, he doesn't know and not draw additional conclusions. But I, I mean, after this one, it, it there was not this blanket dismissal of like, yeah, whatever's going on is important, but it's obviously not aliens. And I, I don't know what it is. It seems like nobody knows or whoever knows is buried in some layers of secrecy. 
as an astrobiologist, I was wondering, like, I wonder why more of my colleagues are probably not tuning, tuning into this. I don't know that this is going to be it. But if we get excited about Boyajian star, anomalous absorption around, a, you know, found by Kepler or phosphine on Venus, to me, this is at least as exciting in terms of like, we need to follow up on what this story is. Well, you know, you got to ask the question, too. The age-old question within SETI is, would we know what we were looking at if we saw evidence of an alien civilization? Because you are forced to start predicting the technology of something that could be a million years more advanced than you are. Does it strike you when we look at the, the reported attributes of the UAP phenomena? Does, it, does that strike you as potentially a, how a highly advanced alien civilization that was here, say it was a von Neumann probe that's printing stuff out, does it strike you as, as possible, as plausible? I can't say that it's not, right? So the testimony we heard, whatever, at least some, you know, in all UAP, it's a blanket category. Some of them are ultimately explainable as mundane, you know, means. But, you know, the things that Ryan Graves encountered and, other, and his colleagues that, that have this unusual movement that I don't, I wouldn't say it defies physics, but it defies essentially our known engineering in the ways we can harness physics. So sure, the extraterrestrial hypothesis is on the table for me. I don't see anything that convinces me that it must be that. But if it looked like an airplane or if it looked like a bird, we would probably have to conclude that it's, it's most likely something we know about. There's going to be a lot of that. But as the uh, recent report in the NASA press conference with their probe into UAP, Dr. Sean Kirkpatrick of Arrow said, well, look, it's probably a mixed bag, but there's still this two to five percent that <laughs> that defy explanation. And I'm hoping that whatever he knows about that two to five percent that leaves him saying, I don't know what it is. If he has a good data set, I hope we eventually get to see that. Are you hopeful we'll ever see real data from the U.S. government? Though? Uh, I we will see real data in the sense that, like you know, they release videos from time to time. You know, the the rate the there's over disclosure or there, there's over over. Uh, classification and under disclosure. I don't think the data that's going to come out is going to be useful in the sense of, of addressing the problem from, from a scientific point of view. The only thing the data that the government gives us can tell us is sort of, you know, the existence of the problem. There are objects in the atmosphere, sometimes space and ocean that, you know, travel at certain velocities and are visible in infrared and optical and, you know, so a few other measured properties. You can use that to design your experiment. And, you know, groups like the Galileo Project, that's exactly what they're doing is we know a little bit about how to sense these things because they've appeared on you know, radar and, and cameras and things. And so you can build an instrumentation suite with intention to capture data. And then in this case, you know, with private projects, then it's not classified and you can distribute it to the scientific community and, and, and there's, there's no secrecy involved. And it's going to be infinitely better because it was designed for that task, whereas, you know, instruments aboard an FA-18 are designed to find foreign <laughs> adversary aircraft, not these, these weird heat signatures or lack thereof that are reported with the UAP. So exactly. you, can, you can make a much better instrument package and get a much better data set privately. But people always say this to me. They're like, well, if they find something, the Galileo Project finds something with one of its observatories, of which they're building more right now. The question is, is that people are going to say, are they going to tell us, you know, are they going to go in and, 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 you know, stop the, <laughs> is the government going to go in with some court order or something like that and raid Harvard, <laughs> raid Harvard University and stop them from disclosing it. And the fact is, I don't think they can. I think that 
it's too decentralized. With our crop of scientists currently, it is very international, just like SETI is. And I just don't see how they could stop it if something were actually found. You think that could happen, though? I think that would be really difficult. I mean, these are off-the-shelf cameras. You know, there's some hardware assembly required, but no, nobody uh, and at the Galileo Project is inventing a new camera. These these are things that exist. I mean, you, you can use your you know good smartphone and, and an attempt to collect some data. It's all not great data, but yeah, the to censor people imaging the sky is going to be very difficult unless you're talking about, you know, maybe one specific facility that the military, you know, discusses with. I, I think that's going to be very difficult. But, you know, let's say that happened. Let's say the Galileo Project detected something. I mean, the reality is, you know, I, I'm an advisor to the Galileo Project. I sit down on their meetings. I'm not involved in the hardware at all. It's not my thing. But, but you know, the reality is if, if it, uh, something were detected, there's no instantaneous alert. You know, you, you collect a bunch of data. There's... AI algorithms that analyze this, and they're still in the development stage, but they publish everything they do. But it's not so much as like, you know, something flies overhead and, and their phone goes off and you see this thing and now the government comes in. So, I mean, yeah, if something got captured and some agency of the government knew that it was recorded, they probably would know about it before, you know, scientists had a chance to really analyze the data. There's, there's a high likelihood of that. And so, yeah, so if they come in and then confiscate the data, well, that's information. Now we know that there are things that the government doesn't want the Galileo Project to discover. We didn't resolve what UAPR, but we know that there's something that whichever agency just sees this doesn't want us to see. And then it gets to be a very murky problem, but we've at least gained some information about it. Yeah, that would be that would be very nefarious information. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've, we've learned that this whole thing is is well, you know, so um. I think I think I forget who said this, but you know, basically, it's either maybe it was uh, uh, well. Anyway, it, uh, it, it's either a, a national security defense problem or it's a scientific problem. I think it was Ryan Graves. Maybe it's both, but that would tell us that it's clearly in, in the first in the in the defense category. If if all of the data got seized, and if nobody cares about it, if this is mundane, uh, well, then it's a scientific problem. Figure out what it is. Well, that's true. If you can actually get it to a, a higher fraction than two to five percent unexplained and you can get it down to less than one percent, you know, just especially with with the filters, you know, the AI filters. If you're looking for you're trying to get rid of insects, you know, flying over, uh, you're trying to get rid of planes and all that, that that goes a long way in reducing down your data set to something where you might actually find something really interesting. Right. And that's getting better. That's right. And that's something that was never really possible before in past decades. So there have been other small scale attempts to intentionally collect UAP data. I mean, I've seen some of these guys present and, and you know, they maybe, you know, found something anomalous that they couldn't explain and have some data that's controlled. But it wasn't over a long period of time. It wasn't over a big geography. But more importantly, what you're saying is we didn't have the ability to process big data before. And, and that's something that we have now. And that technology is only getting better. And so, yeah, you can do a lot of that without hiring students to manually look through videos, you know, ad, not, you know, for ad infinitum. You know, you've, you've got AI algorithms that can identify the planes and birds and then flag the interesting anomalies that are left. Or Clyde Tombaugh sitting there with a blink comparator back, you know, almost 100 years ago trying to find Pluto, <laughs> going through all of these plates, and then he finds it is something that we can do in a day now. That's right. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I mean, you know, if he didn't do that, we wouldn't know how to do do it with AI. That's true. That's true. And he found it. 
you know, uh, no one, no yep. one would ever dispute that Clyde found uh, Pluto. They might dispute if it's a planet or not, but not, <laughs> not to the discovery. <laughs> Which, weirdly enough, Clyde Tompau actually was somebody that saw a UFO and advocated very early on in, in study of it. Uh, he wasn't really listened to, but he was probably the first scientist that I know of that seriously advocated at least looking into it. Hmm. It wasn't, you know, until much later with, you know, Heineck and James McDonald and all that where it got a little bit different of a look. But, yeah, he actually did that. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, I didn't know that. Now, yeah, he was he was one of the first. And uh, he actually saw, as I recall, a UFO with his mother-in-law and his wife. They were sitting around just looking at the stars at like 11 p.m. in Arizona where he lived. And actually saw one and couldn't really ascribe it. He, he really couldn't convince himself that it was some sort of atmospheric, you know, oddity you know, an inversion or something like that. He didn't really think that's what that was. Let's take the different uh, witnesses that were presented today at the uh, hearing. So, David Fravor, are you familiar with that whole Nimitz incident? And as a scientist, where would you go to try to knock it out and say, this is where we should look for a, you know, the simplest explanation? I mean, I'm familiar with the Nimitz case because this was in the news and, and, you know, there was videos that were released. I take this case as just evidence of the existence of the problem again. It doesn't sound like whatever data remains to be declassified is probably going to resolve it. And so I... You know, I don't get too worried when you have, you know, the debunkers trying to focus on that particular case and, and try to explain it. I, I, I don't really get sucked into the weeds of that. If, if I take, you know, the Nimitz case along with other reports from pilots, and this is worldwide too, you know, we heard today from Americans, but, but other pilots in other countries have, have seen anomalous phenomena in the atmosphere. So I sort of, I take the Nimitz case sort of as, as an existence demonstration rather than a case that is calling out for me to explain it. If ultimately it, it turns out that the Nimitz case has some mundane explanations, what I find interesting about it is that there are anomalous phenomena that pilots are seeing flying or you know on, on board a, an aircraft carrier, and, and these need to be explained. There could be six different things going on. And so whatever is going on with the Nimitz, if that's different than what Ryan Graves is seeing, that's fine. That We need to understand all of it. So yeah, I've I'm not, I don't bother worrying about what's the latest debunking theory of that, because to me, it's it's revealing that there's information being collected that we weren't always told about, and, and it's asking for explanation. I tend to agree on that. If, if you get down stuck in the weeds, you end up fighting with everybody on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. and, and the reality is that you, you know, you can debunk the video itself, but that takes it out of context you know, with uh, the other purported data and all that. So it doesn't really end up really being a debunk. One thing that that interests me, though, is patterns. And, you know, you as you said, we heard from the from Americans today. But there are many, many other countries that have had probes into UFOs in the past. And one of the most prominent ones that most people don't even know about was France, right? With, uh, you know, the guy pen. And I mean, of course, it's Need to, need to read French to dig deeply into that one, but I did. And the fact is, is that they have a data set that's greater than anybody else. So you can look for patterns. You know, if you see a Tic Tac here, well, what if the French see a Tic Tac or saw one at some point around their nuclear carrier, the Charles de Gaulle? So I think that might be an air, you know, an interesting avenue of research. Uh, and I know Jacques Follet does this, but to look for patterns and look for all of these different countries who's seeing the same sorts of things. And that might tell you what to look for, maybe. 
Um, I, it would certainly tell you what to look for. Yeah, you, you could look at that data and it would help you to define and refine the requirements of your instrumentation suite. So that's absolutely a good use for that. If you want to look for patterns, I'm not going to like, like, sure, if you want to do that, that does not seem like a strongly compelling problem to me in the sense that you have to prioritize what you, what you work on. But, but if someone were working on that, I don't think that's a fruitless question because maybe there are patterns. One question that remains to be answered, and you'll, it, this requires just large-scale data collection, kind of like the Galileo Project if it were fully funded over a large area. You know, is there more of a, of a concentration of you know, these particular kinds of UAP around military bases or around nuclear facilities? And Maybe the answer is yes. Maybe there's a specific interest in it, and that's why they're there. But there's, to me as an astronomer, there's a strong likelihood that it's a selection bias. That's where all the most sensitive instruments are. And so you're going to see them where we're looking for things. And, you know, Sean Kirkpatrick has showed this image of, you know, UAP sightings, and it's all the places where the military is the most active. And, and uh, uh, Ryan Graves meant, discussed how a lot of these UAP sightings occurred when advanced radar came online onto their aircraft. So, you know, in astronomy, this occurs all the time where there's a selection bias. And, and when a new instrument comes in, it, it reveals a new layer of what's out in space than we previously had before. So I'm reluctant to conclude that there is any kind of discernible pattern based on data we have simply because the data is sort of biased into where you collect. And when, with what instrument, yeah. And when. Yep, exactly. You need to have all sky coverage over a long period of time across a wide geography to have like, to really answer the question. Now, a different sort of route into this that was mentioned in the hearings is the idea of a very different type of evidence that we may have. And that is physical injuries in relation to being in close proximity to a UAP. How do we handle that? Because there is actually, if you know where to look, there's actually more unclassified government documents based on this than there is anything else regarding UAP is where people were injured by them. Can that play into this or, I mean, should that basically not really be approached? Well, okay, I have not looked into anything beyond what was said at the hearing in terms of what that kind of harm could be. You know, they asked uh, one of the Congress people asked if it was, uh, you know, radioactivity and, and you know, that, that would have to be in a closed session. So uh, what do you know that's reliable that's more than just that? Oh, well, I have a document. Uh, <laughs> okay, um, I haven't seen well, it. Well, okay, don't shoot the messenger, but I will describe it. So a an incident happened that, actually, let me pull it up here. But the, um, the thing is, is that essentially what happened was three radio engineers were up on a television tower in the 1990s. And that's what this document says. And it's on a you know, government website, there'll be a link below. And they had some kind of an encounter with a vehicle of unknown origin that damaged them on multiple levels. And it was, yeah, it was a defense intelligence agency that, that this document is from. It's on their website. And they commissioned a study. And I don't know anything about the validity of the science that was used for this study, but they quoted all sorts of things. And then they quoted after effects that included uh, malignant tumors and all sorts of things. Um, and they also oh, cited okay. another case where somebody was exposed to radiation purportedly from a UFO called the Cash Landrum 
uh, incident where people were, you know, physically harmed by some type of ionizing radiation from whatever this was. Oh, and another one was Rendlesham Forest, which is a very famous one. So there is a history of people being damaged by the UAP. The problem is, is that if you start dealing with people that have been through some sort of traumatic experience like this, which came first, the damage or the UFO? And it's sort of unclear, you know, and if it was something else, you know, is it misinterpreted, you know, um, experimental weapons or something like that? So it's a lot of, lot of sort of very scary stuff, but it's an avenue that this is probably going to be forced down because it was asked by the congressman today because they're starting to hear the same things that I did about these documents and studies that were done. And I, that worries me because if it is a, a so-called NIH or, or a alien civilization, it doesn't seem very nice. <laughs> right, right. I mean... Yeah, I mean, there's a, a, a few things going on there. If it's a defense issue, then, of course, the health of the people who are investigating this as well as encountering them matters a lot. So just based on that alone, if there is some validity to any kind of health risk when you encounter whatever it would be, whichever UAP, then that seems like an important reason for you know military and, and health you know, agencies to take this seriously, just based on defense alone. And then, I mean, if, if from a scientific point of view, if that health effect, if there's more corroborating evidence to link it to specific UAP events, then that would be evidence for adding some you know, radioactivity detector uh, on your instrument suite, which I believe the Galileo Project has some sort of particle uh, counter. They have, their papers are online describing their instrument suite. Yeah, I read them. Yeah. They do. They, they've got all kinds of interesting ideas like passive right. radar, all kinds of unusual ideas that, that represent, at least to me, a completely different new way to, to look at um, you know, UAP and study them. Now, moving to the next witness, Ryan Graves. Here, the big question is aviation hazards. Now, it has to be said that there's we've never seen a, you know, a Southwest flight between Houston and New York suck a UAP into the engine. But at the same time, a lot of pilots see them. Does it mean anything that there hasn't ever been a an unequivocal UAP aircraft hit? Now there have there has been links long ago. There were crashes that that were linked to UAP, but not a direct hit like you would think you would see in our modern age with as many as airliners as we have in the air globally at any given time. So does that seem to suggest something that this is a non-physical phenomenon, maybe? Right. You know, I've had uh, you know a couple of colleagues suggest this that you know the, the you know the. The lack of any direct collisions casts doubt on the relevance of the risk factor. And, you know, all I can say is if you apply that logic to anything else, you end up with really bad situations, some of which we do end up with bad situations. But, you know, the, the, the precaution and risk in, in aviation and military is maybe different than we think about it in daily life. We probably should think about it like that when we're driving, but unfortunately, most of us don't. And so law is often reactionary. Once there's some sort of catastrophe, then you pass laws to, to prevent that in the future. 
What strikes me is, I believe it's one of the most recent Aero report mentions that there have been near misses. And so anytime a pilot has to adjust their flight course due to some perceived hazard, um, that's significant. You know, it's, it's more significant than you had to change lanes because someone was pulled over. Um, because flight paths are, are supposed to be more you know, predictable and, and coordinated. And if you have too much uncertainty in, in flight paths, that can just you know cause other kinds of problems. So just from that point of view alone, it's important to take the problem seriously. It doesn't mean it's aliens, but it means let's figure out how to be aware of our airspace because that's what pilots are supposed to do. You know, you also have to wonder, too, because, you know, long ago there was a, a very, very, very hyper skeptic guy that suggested it's all plasmas, atmospheric plasmas. Well, I think we really ought to know about that if even if that's the case. I think we can kind of rule out that not all of them are at this point, but just the idea that maybe the atmosphere can do things that we're not aware of that could down a plane inexplicably. And how do we know that, you know, crashes in the past that were ascribed to a certain, you know, ambiguous failure or something like that might actually have been hitting some sort of atmospheric phenomenon that we aren't aware of? Is that, I mean, that seems to me to still be a possibility. Sure. If it's atmospheric plasma, then there's a big discovery in plasma physics waiting to happen. And somebody's going to get some credit for that. And, and it's going to be, if, if there's something in, in atmospheric plasma or some other atmospheric phenomena that is causing confusion for our pilots, then that's a really important scientific problem. It's a lot more important than some of the other science being done. There's a lot of good science. I'm not insulting anybody's science. But the level of curiosity to me should be elevated among scientists who care about the atmosphere and, and, and you know low Earth orbit space uh, if there's something going on that we don't understand. If it's purely physical and Earth-based or, or, or space-based, that's still exciting as a scientist. Yeah, especially when you start really uh, uh, tossing it out there because, all right, so you got weird phenomena happening in the atmosphere of Earth that we weren't aware of, and, and that's happened before. Ball lightning was once in contention, you know, and now we know it exists. So what about places like Mars? What what weirdness happens in that atmosphere, you know? <laughs> well, that's right. You know, my, my day job is studying exoplanet atmosphere, I mean, including Mars, but exoplanets, and, and there's weird stuff that happens when you try to understand what are the atmospheres of the trappist planets like you know what was earth like in its past what will earth be like in a billion years and you know we can start to understand this and even just using the tools we have now that are even a little bit earth-centric you still get into weird regimes that are very non-earth-like and and we're starting to observe these in other planets so um there's there's maybe a little bit of humility needed you know maybe we didn't discover aliens maybe whatever the government is hiding is something more mundane than alien bodies and spaceships but like something needs to be explained and if this is we don't understand our atmosphere well enough like well, great. I'm an atmospheric scientist. Let's understand it better. It's probably going to help us understand all the other planets better, too. Yeah, especially when you get into things like Jupiter and lightning, stuff like that, where you just have an atmosphere right. so remarkably different than what we know, yet in some ways similar. But it's just that the just the different gases, that you, the combinations that you could have in, in the Milky Way is just fascinating because they're, they're atmospheres that we have no analog of here in the solar system. And, I mean, we could see some really wild stuff. For sure. Now, um, in regards to the, the last witness, David Grush, um, we're looking at a very, very large claim, an extraordinary claim. As a scientist, 
if the if the government rolled out a UAP, what they thought was a UAP, something weird that they found, and they said, Dr. Hack, Mr. O, would you take a look at this? Where would you start in analyzing a, a purported piece of alien technology? Let's see what the materials are. You know, the, you, you can you can look, you can do an analysis of, you know, the, the materiological composition. Get it with a mass spec, put it in, you know, you can do x-ray imagery. Like I, I would image it to figure out, you know, composition and then molecular structure. I'd have to bring in some colleagues, you know, who, who are more experimentally minded. But, you know, functionally, like, okay, let, let's see what it's made of. If this is made of standard carbon steel and, and plastic and stuff, we know about like well i'm i'm going to conclude it's probably earth based if this is something that looks alien in the sense of metals that that bear no resemblance to things we know about and molecular structures that boggle our engineers they don't understand how you would even make such a thing and we can't come up with any good abiotic processes i would be excited and and and, you know then there'd be some some follow-up as to like where was this thing found and under what conditions and and you know what can we then you know deduce from that made mostly of technetium (laughs) (laughs) okay isotopes (laughs) i won't get too close yeah so but the first thing i do is pull out a geiger counter and ask how far away do i have to be (laughs) Well, that's one of the things that concerns me is that maybe we should be telling all these military personnel that if they see one of these things, don't go near it. Uh, because if it can damage you and it's of unknown origin of weird materials, I mean, you don't know what health effects could come from that. Well, right. I mean, you know, this is any any military personnel, any uh, astronauts. Safety is the primary factor in in these missions. It's keeping the people safe, and so, um, and, and not military too. You know, if you're working in a radiation in a in a power plant where you're exposed to radiation or any other kind of industrial job, you're, you're the amount of radiation you're exposed to is tracked. So safety is is everything for these kind of dangerous tasks. So if that's all it is, if there's weird plasmas in the sky that are also generating harmful radiation. That's a really important problem then. Let's study that and and keep our military personnel safe. Yeah, which is another reason to study it. Now, there has always been blowback within the scientific community to even take a look at it. Granted, there's always been some that will. And right now we have more scientists looking into it than we ever have. But do you think that there is a problem within astronomy in general of a bias against even looking into this phenomenon? Yes, (laughs) <laughs> and why do you, and why do you think that why, is? It, it's the cultural baggage associated with everything under the umbrella of what's considered ufology right and and you know you, you can go you can find a ufo convention without too much trouble that's got everything from the nimitz videos featured to bigfoot expedition and when astronomers see stuff like that all grouped together they throw it all out and it I'll admit, it took me some time to sift through, the, I call it a signal to noise problem. There's a lot of noise. I'm not interested in crop circles. I think we've got a good handle on that. But I think Ryan Graves is pointing to something that we need to explain. And that distinction, it, you know, there are astronomers who are interested in talking to me and my colleagues, you know, Ravi Koparapu and others who, who take this seriously. And if they listen to us, I can say what I just said to you and, and they'll understand that. But if that's kind of where they're coming at it from is there's, you know, and then especially within SETI and astrobiology, um, it's even trickier because 
both astrobiology in general, the search for life in, in the universe, and then SETI, uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence, both have, have separately had to sort of fight for legitimacy within astronomy and within the scientific community in general. And so distancing themselves from science fiction and ufology is one of the, has at least historically was one of the strategies to gain legitimacy and highlight the fact that you're doing real science, not like sci-fi and not like UFO stuff. And so that mentality is still very much present. It's worth noting, though, that that's gotten better. It has. I remember when SETI got defunded by the U.S. government back in the 90s, whereas now it wouldn't surprise me at all that they would get plenty of funding for technosignature searches. But they had to rebrand it as technosignature searches. You can't call it SETI anymore if you're in NASA. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm funded for technosignature research, and, and NASA is very interested. And so there is a change in, in that culture. And then, of course, NASA has this, you know, UAP uh, panel, but but they're not funding any searches yet. It's simply more accepted today so that you can't. Well, I don't risk my professional reputation being here on this show. Ravi Koparapu and I have authored articles in Scientific American and the Washington Post calling for just scientific interest in UAP. And we did not get any retaliation. We didn't lose our funding. And I think those were more significant risks a few decades ago. Right. Much more so. Close versus far. And this gets into SETI because SETI can tell us, say you find an unambiguous radio signal. You find the wow signal repeats or something like that. You find it unambiguously. That is an alien signal from 40 light years away. It repeats. We've got it that's aliens. Now you can reasonably say that because it's 40 light years away. You know, you can say that's very likely to be a complete second A biogenesis and development of a civilization, you know, probably not related to us, right? Uh, can't do that with a UFO <laughs> of alien origin. So do you see it as the closer the alien, the harder it is to truly prove that it is alien? Oh, I see. Um, I actually think it's the opposite. And so uh, I'll set aside UAP for just a second. And within SETI, um, there has sort of the historical SETI uh, that was looking at radio signals and then later, you know, optical signals uh, that are coming from exoplanetary systems and, you know, direct, either directed toward Earth or we're catching their leakage or something like that. And that's kind of the traditional mode of SETI. But about the same time when the SETI effort started, there was also this other smaller effort, uh, you know, the search for extraterrestrial artifacts, it was sometimes called, or solar system SETI. And this was the idea that, well, you know, yes, we've got radio transmitters, but we've also sent out spacecraft. There's the Pioneer and Voyager spacecraft. Uh, there's New Horizons now. And then, you know, this breakthrough star shot that is just being in a design phase. So the idea of sending spacecraft to explore another system, that's the best way to get data. And so that's something we're doing already. So what if extraterrestrial sent spacecraft into the solar system, just, you know, exploratory spacecraft? Maybe they landed on the moon. Maybe they're floating at these gravitationally stable points known as Lagrange points where you can kind of float without too much energy. And, you know, they might even be broken. They may have been sent here billions of years ago, a couple billion years ago or more, and they took some data, beamed it back, and then the mission was ended. So in, in that sense, if we found, you know, alien garbage floating around, you know, near Earth's orbit or on the moon or something, like I said, if you did some sort of compositional and structural analysis 
of this thing, I think you could be very convinced that this was not terrestrial if in fact it wasn't. Now, where exactly did they come from in the solar system is going to be a trickier problem. But if you find a radio signal coming from an extrasolar planetary system, that would be pretty compelling too. Unless you could decode the information, if there's information there, there may not be. So you may get sort of the existence of that. There, there may be some pushback as to whether there's another explanation, but let's say it's unambiguous you know, in, in what we're expecting. So you find what SETI is expecting. You, you've got that. And then where do you go from there? Now we've got 40 light years away is, is a narrow band radio signal coming from us. We think there's a technological civilization. Well, you've got two options. Either you send a message back or you send a probe to explore. So the idea that there could be exploratory probes, whether or not this has any connection to UAP, I think is a really interesting area to do study. And I actually think there needs to be more effort on just looking in our own solar backyard for what kinds of you know junk or, or, or functional spacecraft might be there. Do you think it suffers from a statistical problem, though? I mean, what is the likelihood that you'll run into an alien artifact in your own star system close enough for you to detect and, and recover it, as opposed to a radio signal from very distant covering a huge amount of area? Is it statistically less likely, unless there are aliens absolutely everywhere, that we would find a solar system artifact? Now, I also support the search for this, by the way. I, would, I absolutely love to search the surface of the moon for anything that might be buried there. Because there you have time, billions of years of preservation. But do you think it suffers from that statistical problem that it seems unlikely that we would see that? Right. No, it's a great question. I think both forms of SETI suffer from that problem. But what you can do is, you know, it does depend on your, your prior odds for a, a, a solar system being populated by technology. And, you know, Avi Loeb seems to say things that suggest that most interstellar objects or many of them are technological rather. You know, so who knows? It, may, we, it could be. We have to look. But what you can do for SETI in the solar system is you don't necessarily have to build dedicated expensive spacecraft to look for such thing. You can harness the existing solar system exploration uh, that we're doing now and just be aware of the fact that, hey, you can do some good ancillary technosignature science, put constraints on the artifacts. Because, you know, like in, in most of the searches are going to find nothing. So what do you do? Like, well, what you've done is if you say we have looked at the surface of the moon at five meter resolution and we didn't see anything anomalous you've put a limit on you know what there could be there that we don't know about at the moon you know unless it's camouflaged and and that's a useful you know thing to do when when Oumuamua came by there was three different radio SETI groups that pointed their radio telescopes toward it to see is there any radio signals coming from it they didn't detect any so you can put a lower limit on or an upper limit on you know what um you know what what the strength of any transmissions could be coming if if there were any present and so so you you don't demonstrate for sure that it's not technological but you can provide some constraints to show where else you'd have to look if you wanted to keep pursuing that hypothesis so I think, you know, there's a lot of rovers on, you know, Mars, there's lunar rovers and, and orbiters, and there's other solar system exploration. So what I would like to see is just, you know, number one, just greater interest among the astronomical community in technosignature science, which is, is happening, um, but especially for solar system technosignature searches. And then, you know, just a little bit of willingness from agencies like NASA and maybe private agencies to put some funding toward the analysis. You know, it requires person hours 
to look through data and do some techno signature searches. You don't need to build a new mission, but but you could you could make some progress by by looking. And you know, one of my colleagues, Daniel Angerhausen, has a project where he is doing this with high resolution lunar images, looking for anomalies. And uh, you know, you should be able to find technology on the moon. There's the Apollo landing sites. There's the Russians have crashed. Um, so so you know, if the algorithms work, you you find technology. Just the question is, do we find any anomalous signals that we weren't expecting? And that that's actually interesting because if they're actually is something crashing objects into earth of technological origin they're probably crashing them into the moon as well <laughs> but you you probably have a better chance of finding them maybe um, in some in some ways yeah especially looking for craters <laughs> that's right but at the same time i've never in any lunar geology seen anything suggested would suggest that so that that's one of the things that that my own skepticism comes into play here is that well all right where do we find the aluminum in the archaeological record or the the steel from five thousand years ago humans will use metal wherever they find it that's been proven in in anthropology many many times that whenever you a human finds an iron meteorite they start hammering on it even if they can't smelt iron and it would seem to me that we should see weird uap related materials in the archaeological record but that is not reported other than sort of questionable dubious claims of these things so that's one thing that worries me is that if this is if there's something to this it only recently started crashing why <laughs> right so, yeah i mean so th- there's a couple things one with you know archaeology it's difficult to sort of conclude much from the lack of evidence because you know i mean in, in astronomy too they have some things in common in in the sense that you know you can look for things that your your theories have predicted um but you know especially with archaeology if you're not digging in the right place it might be there and you just didn't find it and that doesn't mean it's not there it just means you weren't looking in, in the right place i think the other part is it's entirely possible that it's a more recent phenomenon there's sort of as, as i'm thinking okay there's we, we weren't interesting until recently <laughs> yeah there's there's you know there's the idea there's a possibility that you know started in the 30s which i think came up in the hearing today right now did it start in the 30s because we were you know coming off of world war 1 and into world war 2 and we have aircraft and we're able to actually monitor our airspace more, maybe. And then so how far back does it go? So I can't answer that question, but it seems like there's some connection with you know the advances in our airspace instrumentation. But that said, you know, I've talked to some social scientists that seem compelled to think that many, if not most of the, you know, or, or a good fraction of like religious experiences and other sightings of things in the sky across the past several thousand years are all the same thing. And I'm skeptical of that. I would be skeptical of that as well because there are certain historical things. For example, I, during the Dark Ages, a sighting of a, of a red cross in the sky, which was interpreted in Europe as religious symbolism. But when you really read into it, it really sounds a lot like an aurora borealis of some sort. And that they were just seeing it in England or whatever, just more southern than it normally would. And, of course, given their mindset at the time, they they – gave it religious connotations when in fact it was just an aurora that's going to be a lot different than a giant fireball a meteorite entering the atmosphere so i think you could you can't really say it's all the same thing because the astronomical stuff we see isn't all the same thing that's right yeah there's there's probably other explanations and even if one of these ancient stories is in fact 
the same thing that Ryan Graves is talking about, that ancient story isn't going to help us out at all. It's somebody said they saw something and they wrote it down in an ancient text. And that's what we have. There's no video. There's no radar. There's nothing. So so it, it doesn't really help us with much, even the existence of the problem. Because how do you know that that ancient story is the same or different than another ancient story versus what we heard about today? So I, I don't think that's a useful territory to explore. I think if if you go back to the 30s and look at what, you know, pilots were seeing then, that might help inform your experimental design. Um, but but that's about it. You're getting closer in technology when you do that right. and attitude, how we think. Right. But again, a fresh data set from here on out would be way, way superior to anything else that, that we've seen before. That's the only thing that's going to help us figure this out. All right, Jacob, it was, as always, wonderful to talk to you again, and I hope we can check in again as, as this progresses, because one thing you can say about this is it's really interesting. It's really interesting. Yeah, it's definitely not getting dull, and I'm going to be looking forward to you know the next hearing. It's probably going to be a classified briefing or you know half and half, but uh, either way, I'm glad that Congress is, is taking action on this. They're, they're you know, er- earning their jobs there. Event Horizon and my channel are now available as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube memberships. Early ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and sleep-focused content. Sign up now by clicking the links below to your platform of choice.